Hey there, welcome to Tea with Mara. Thanks for seeking out these recordings and listening. My name is George, or you may know me in the metaverse as Kiyoki from Together with Trip. These recordings are from my live sessions in virtual reality and may sometimes feature other content. For the best experience of these sessions, you can join me in virtual reality. But when you can't, or if you want to go back and listen again, these audio or video recordings will be offered freely to all. To join us in VR or for the live broadcast on our Discord server, you can find our full schedule of events by visiting trip.com events, including instructions on how to join us in VR. You can even join in 2D mode from a computer. If you wish to support my teachings and these recordings, the best way to do that is to leave a review and share this podcast with others. And if you find value in them and you want to, you can make a donation offering right through the Two Hands Sangha website or soon through the podcast itself. All links should be found in the show notes. Now let's invite the bell and begin. Good evening and welcome. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I think tonight, you know, I've been thinking a lot about harmony. A couple of times recently in our mindfulness and mayhem session that we do on Wednesdays with Kristen and I, we've been talking about tactical harmony a couple of weeks ago and then again last night. The importance of communication in a team when you're playing a game and how that can carry over into our so-called real life. (laughs) I don't know what real life is necessarily, but anyways, yesterday we built this very abstract kind of discordant world very quickly. And then we had fun playing a game in that world. And then following that, we had what I hope was a lovely meditation on the topic about how well we all worked together and how we could all work together even better in the future based on what we learned. And over the four years I've been with this community, at least a few times, I've shared the the topic of no self. And I've talked about the teaching of form is emptiness and emptiness is form, which is one way of saying it. Sometimes that's called sunyata. Or, uh, there's various words for it. Emptiness, basically. And usually when I talk about that, I always talk about the the first time I ever sort of caught a glimpse of it. For me, the first time I ever kind of got past just an intellectual understanding of it uh, was I got a tiny little taste of the reality of it, not just the idea of it. And it was while I was out walking one day and I was thinking about my dad. My dad passed away when I was young and he was a jazz musician and I had been reading about the concept of emptiness early on in my practice. This was in the first couple of years of my practice. And while I was out for my afternoon exercise, there was a a bunch of different little practices I used to do while I was walking, you know, in my mind. And there was a practice that I used to do all the time that I got from Thich Nhat Hanh called inviting the ancestors. 
And I would invite my dad and my mom to walk with me. So I would go for a walk and then I would do some practice as I was walking. And, and after those practices, when I was kind of settled in mentally, I would sort of open up my senses a little bit, my hearing and seeing. And I would first look up at the sky and I would find a cloud or some bird flying or something beautiful in the sky. And when I did, I would invite my mother to hold my hand and walk with me. And my mother had also passed away. I would invite her to walk with me and sort of catch up mentally, you know. And it was a way of like remembering and honoring her. And for me, finding beauty uh, was my way of finding her. And then after I had sort of mentally caught up with her, I would do the same thing for my dad, except my dad wasn't beautiful. <laughs> so for my dad, he was a jazz musician and I would listen for what I call the bio-digital jazz from the Tron movie. <laughs> but I would listen all around to all the sounds around me, all the monotonous sort of rhythmic droning sounds. And I would listen for something that stood out. It could be you know, something that wasn't quite right, something sort of dissonant. And I would invite my dad uh, to walk with me when I heard that, to walk with me and my mother. As a jazz man, he never made me think of the rhythm sounds. He always made me uh, think of, you know, the solos. <laughs> and he would definitely never be caught in the rhythm. So if he were sound, he would certainly have been very obvious and easy to pick out. He wouldn't have been normal. So when I would hear, you know, some explosion of dogs barking or a backfire from a car or something that stood out, I would invite him to walk with me and sort of, oh, there you are. Come walk with us. And while my dad was discordant and perhaps more obvious than most in life, I don't think that that was actually all that unique to him. I think that humans are by our very nature discordant inharmonious. And if I'm being even more accurate, I'd say that absolute reality, uh, you know, our, our absolute reality nature is what you might call Buddha nature is harmony and our relative reality, which is us physical presence, us is discordant. So I think that most of the time, for most of the people, we walk around being sort of unpleasant to the ear, so to speak. <laughs> because we're harmonious beings trapped in inharmonious bodies. <laughs> and that sometimes, I think, in brief shining moments, I think we also uh, sort of align with ourselves and our true nature with one another and we make beautiful music together as humans. The dissonance resolves and makes pleasant, pleasing music that the relative reality ear really craves. And this week I had people from every area of my life, it seems, of which VR happens to only be one of those. <laughs> I have a lot of other things going on. And I had people from every area of my life sort of approach me and unload on me about this or that noise. And when I say noise, I mean whatever thing in life was inharmonious for them. <laughs> whatever was unpleasing to their mental ear, 
whatever had them all twisted up, you know, whether it was their coworkers, you know, complaining about a coworker in my day job or my wife spilling the tea about her friend's company, friends, family, loved ones, and even here in our own beloved community. And beloved community is a term that Thich Nhat Hanh used for Sangha. So I've been getting these, these I've been sort of getting hit from everywhere this week <laughs> with, uh, with the discord. And I don't mean our server. <laughs> I mean discordance. <laughs> when humans are near, it seems that conflict and communication breakdown is in your ear. <laughs> but we're so fortunate in the Dharma practice. If you're a follower of the Dharma, then you're not free from that noise, but you have an incredible framework through which to resolve such things. You have practices and examples and a teacher, the Buddha, who taught about and systematized and documented just how to handle such things. And just as Buddhists... Uh, you know, Buddhists, we don't really evangelize, but rather we lead through being exemplars. The Buddha often did so for the Sangha. When conflict arose, he would usually teach through example, or often would teach through example, rather than just telling them what to do. Thich Nhat Hanh, by the way, literally wrote an entire and pretty massive book on the subject of how to probably build and work with a Sangha is called Friends on the Path. It's really an operator's manual, not so much a Dharma book. So unless you're interested in creating a Sangha and running it by the book, literally, uh, I wouldn't recommend seeking it out. But the Buddha had great advice for us on conflict resolution and how to be together in community. So let's get into some of that. I, I've frequently told the story, many times I've told the story about the Sangha that hated a particular person in their community. I think the story is called Gurdjieff's Pupil. But he, he, this guy in the community, he was rude and obnoxious and he smelled bad and, you know, he was always saying terrible things and, you know, people just didn't like him very much. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And, and they started complaining to one another about him. They were talking about him. Oh, this guy's a problem. We got to do something about it, you know, and so on. And you know how gossip and false speech goes. Pretty soon, the annoyance of this guy turned into pitchforks and torches, and they ran the guy off from their community. And everybody was so happy they got rid of him, you know, and now they finally had the a pleasant, peaceful community because they got rid of this obnoxious guy. And when the teacher of that community found out about it, he went out and found the man and he hired him as an employee and paid him to come back and keep being a member of the Sangha. So doing the same thing he always had been doing, annoying everybody and being obnoxious, but he was being paid to do it now. And the next day they all came into Sangha and they found him there and they were like, oh God, he's back. And why is he back? And after they all kind of got upset about it, the teacher said, you know, hey, you need him because he teaches you where your shadows are, where your edges are, you know. He admonished the community and said, 
um, you know, to be a good community, you have to learn to work together. You have to learn to resolve these kinds of conflicts. And the things that he uh, irritates in you, those are reflections of the things that you need to work on. Just like my own teacher, one of one of my teachers, a, a real a great guy named Vinny Ferraro. Vinny pulled me aside one time because I was that student in his training class who always had the answer for every question. And he very gently pulled me aside in a checkup one day. And he said that it was okay if I didn't answer every question. (laughs) He was so skillful about it. He said, man, you know, he checked in with me. We had a nice chat and he said, you know, you're so smart. He said, everybody knows it and everybody admires that in you, how deeply, you know, practiced you are and blah, blah. You know, he said lots of nice things, very, you know, I could feel him like ladling it on, you know, (laughs) he said, everybody admires that. And he said, you're so loving and you want to help out so much. And I said, but (laughs) because I knew there was a, a big, but coming. And he said, but sometimes the people who don't have all of that courage that you have, uh, they need a minute of awkward silence to screw up the courage to say something that they really need to say. And he said, if you jump in with an answer, they don't get that opportunity. And he said, if you just ask yourself, what's the most generous thing I can do in this situation? And then do that. You'll find that sometimes, quite often, the most generous thing is to just sit in silence. And see what beauty comes from somebody else who musters up the courage after a few minutes of awkward silence to share something. So he very gently and sweetly admonished me. And told me I should shut up sometimes. (laughs) He didn't say that. But I got the message. And that little lesson has turned into a way of life for me. Asking what's the most generous thing that I can do in this moment. Because it applies to everything. Everything. Not that I'm good at it, mind you. But I work very hard at it. I work hard at strengthening that muscle. Harmony within a community. And community... uh, relationships and just relationships is essential. The Buddha taught us about the impermanence of life and he taught about the interdependence of all things. And understanding that is crucial to dealing with conflicts. When we accept that situations and opinions are not permanent, they're impermanent, we open ourselves up to the possibility of change and resolution. If you think about it from a Buddhist perspective, conflict is actually very sensible. It makes perfect sense to a Buddhist that there's conflict. In a certain sense, human existence and our suffering is conflict. In a way, everything Buddhism is teaching is about finding harmony in a situation that is inherently inharmonious or or conflicted. Our mortal bodies and minds are literally born into a system within which they don't match up with our true nature, whatever you want to think of that as Buddha nature or whatever you want to think of it as 
I would call it absolute reality. So our absolute reality selves are, so to speak, it's not the right way to say it probably, but are born into a relative reality body. And immediately from there forward, we are in a state of conflict that we have to learn to work with. And that actually that conflict is what makes it so beautiful, I think. So in absolute reality, everything is one. And in relative reality, we have an I, me, and mine, a self. So Buddhism is tailor-made to work with conflict resolution. It is conflict resolution in a certain way of saying it. So harmony is essential to uncover. And if we consider conflicts that arise from differing opinions, then it's natural for individuals to have their own unique perspectives. You know, in a Sangha, these differences should be seen as chances for us to grow rather than sources of discord. In the Kalama Sutta, uh, uh, it encourages us to accept things uh, that are and not to accept things based merely on tradition or authority, but to use our own experience as our teacher, as our reasoning. In conflicts of opinion, we should listen deeply to each other. We should respect each other's viewpoints and use wise discernment, to whatever degree we have that, to find a path that aligns with the Dharma, and that will lead to harmony. All these misunderstandings can also occur due to a lack of communication or poor communication. Um, Things like misinterpretation or age differences. This is one that I encounter frequently, this communication problem, and one which I work diligently to sort out and get out in front of, so to speak. I do that by always trying to use and clarify proper languaging in a discussion. This just happened in my day job yesterday. A coworker asked if he could send out a, a particular URL to a customer, a web address. And the developer said, no, never send out another URL. And what the dev meant was, in the context of the conversation, another URL other than the correct one. But what the coworker understood him to mean was, Never send out URLs ever again. (laughs) And either one of those could be correct because the language was not clear. So what the dev should have said, maybe, was never send out a URL other than the one that is provided for that purpose. And that would have been clear. The practice of right speech is our tool in these situations. We should speak truthfully and gently and beneficially, always aiming to reconcile and promote understanding. It it needs to be timely, useful, truthful, and kind. Deep listening is every bit as important as mindful speaking. When we listen to others, truly listen to others, we not only understand their words, but also their feelings and their intentions. If the coworker I talked about had taken context in, he would have understood that the dev meant other URLs that differ from the correct one. But he was taking the words literally and not considering the context that they were being used in. 
So with more profound conflicts, deep personal conflicts, you know, kind of like those that arise from past hurts or traumas, uh, from deep seated beliefs and things, the practices of loving kindness and compassion are essential. Those kinds of conflicts require a lot of patience and time to heal and a lot of practice and a lot of listening <laughs> and reflecting. By cultivating loving kindness, you know, we, we sort of develop a very forgiving heart, not just towards others, but towards ourselves. And we understand that we also need forgiveness. Compassion then also helps us understand other people's suffering, see from their point of view. And it guides us to act in ways that, is, that you know, help to alleviate all of that miscommunication and the suffering around it. In all cases, mindfulness is always our anchor. If we're mindful of our thoughts and emotions and actions in the midst of a conflict, it allows us to be able to respond with clarity and wisdom instead of reactions and emotions. That doesn't mean don't have emotion or be emotionless. It just means don't react from those emotions. You know, respond and include emotion. Don't react with emotion. It's a very subtle but very blatant at the same time difference. And this mindfulness coupled with understanding of the teachings of the Dharma is fully capable of transforming all these things into insight, into growth. And aside from the Gurdjieff story I mentioned earlier about the pupil that they, you know, they, they ran off, there's a ton of other suttas in the Dharma that support this topic. There's uh, a great one titled The Quarrel at Kasambi, which sounds to me like a title for a title for some sort of action movie or something the quarrel at Kasambi. But the Buddha once encountered a severe conflict amongst some of the monks in Kasambi, and they were quarreling and disputing over a minor rule. This actually happened a lot. <laughs> but the Buddha attempted to reconcile them, and he emphasized to them the importance of harmony, the importance of respect and mutual appreciation. And it, he wasn't getting through to them. And he walked away from them. He said, so long, boys. And he was out of there. He went to the woods and he meditated. And so when those initial efforts failed, he retreated to the forest and he demonstrated to them the importance of solitude and reflection. He embodied, uh, he was an exemplar of how to handle deep conflict. He retreated and reflected. And the monks Upon seeing that, they realized their mistake, and they eventually reconciled. There was a schism one time caused by Devadatta, the cousin of the Buddha, and he caused this you know, problem in the Sangha by proposing stricter disciplinary rules. And let me tell you, they already have some pretty strict disciplinary rules, but he encouraged more discipline, and he was seeking his own following. He wanted to be 
the, the top dog, you know? So the Buddha addressed the conflict by teaching the importance of unity and by emphasizing the middle path about being neither too lax nor too strict when it came to monastic discipline. And, you know, there, there was relating to monastic discipline and those rules. There's a, a book called the Vinaya and the Vinaya, it has all the rules for the monastics that they live by. And if you've ever heard me talk about the five precepts, the five rules that we follow as lay people, lay practitioners, lay people, you know, don't lie, don't steal, you know, those five, right? The monks have about 227 or so. <laughs> and they have to know them by heart and they have to live by them. And if they don't live by them, they get let go from the order. So it's pretty important. <laughs> and at one point there was, there was more, more rules than that. And, and it got so crazy that the Buddha started cutting out the rules. He started going, okay, you're adults. You, you know better. You can do this, you know? So it got restricted down to 227. <laughs> the Vinaya contains all these instances where he resolved disputes over these, these rules. And he often had to clarify the rules for them and provide a context and rationale for them to understand, you know, why they could or couldn't do certain things. His approach was very pragmatic to this. He was always sort of aiming to preserve the harmony and integrity of the monastic community. So there's lots of rules that had to be spelled out and he had to resolve all of these conflicts. So lots of things go wrong in communities, even amongst monastics. There was a dispute one time where the Buddha addressed uh, this conflict and it was coming from arising attachments to views and opinions. He taught the monks, don't cling to views and opinions, you know, don't engage, don't engage in disputes but focus on understanding the nature of reality and practice the path. And if you do that, the disputes go away. Because if you understand the nature of reality, there's no need for a dispute. So he told him, quit worrying about the wrong things. One time there was a, a dispute that arose with the monks over seating arrangements. <laughs> the Buddha resolved it by establishing a rule that seating would always be based on the order of ordination in the monks. In other words, seniority doth have its privileges, right? So that kind of highlights how he solved things very practically and, and uh, with fair and clear guidelines. And all of these examples are from the Pali Canon, and there's plenty more where that came from. But they're grounded in principles like understanding and compassion, non-attachment to views and practical wisdom. His teachings all had to do with, you know, actions that, that supported harmony, mutual respect, and adhering to the Dharma for the well-being of the Sangha. So hopefully you see that the Buddha wasn't a perfect human. Neither was his Sangha. They encountered many, many different situations where these seemingly wise and sage monastics were at each other's throats or doing things they actively knew better than to do. And I don't know anyone who never does anything they know better than to do. It's funny that that word harmony I mentioned at the beginning tonight, the definition of harmony is when two or more pitches are sounded together to form a chord. 
and they have a pleasing effect on the ear. At least that's the non-religious definition. And the choice of pitches that are combined when you make harmony, when you make a chord, is important. Not all combinations of pitches sound pleasing together. Musicians use that. They use consonant and dissonant sounds to make use of them and create feelings of tension in their music. These moments of discordant or dissonant tension are what gives us the chance to, or gives them the chance to then provide for us consonants or concordant resolution. And that's where the listener uh, loves to hear the resolution because they love to hear the pleasing sound, especially after the sound is not pleasing. A musician who creates a song that has perfect concordant harmony throughout is not going to be very memorable. They're going to be a bit boring. It's perfect. There's nothing wrong with it, but you won't remember it. Our human ears and mind, turns out, appreciate harmony more after they've experienced disharmony. We appreciate uh, the good more when we've experienced the bad. Almost any song that you really love, like all real legendary songs, have these moments of dissonance and concordance throughout them. The, the, maybe one of the most famous, or actually a bunch of the most famous are from the Beatles, but one of the most famous is Penny Lane. Paul McCartney was a genius when it came to this use of discordant and concordant sounds. Those little parts of songs where everybody sings almost always fall after a period of discord. And we all sing because it all comes back together. You know how it is, everybody's kind of humming along or whatever, and then it gets to that part of the song and everybody kind of chimes in, right? My point is that humans don't just do this with music. We love great songs because they aren't perfect. I mentioned the story about my dad earlier and how I understood jazz and music and emptiness through that story. I didn't mention the main point of that story, which was that I realized in that moment that... Uh, Notes in a song without rests are just noise. And noise without notes, you know, would just be silent noise. <laughs> uh, but when you put the two together, you have music. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. You know, music is made up of silence and sound. And I'm not sure that that makes sense. You know, sense to anybody but me, but it did to me. It made perfect sense to me, and it all kind of clicked, and I had a moment. And this thing about discord or dissonance is kind of the same thing. Sure, you could play perfectly harmonious notes, and it would be fine, but when a song has a little bit of dissonance and then resolves into harmony, like Penny Lane does, when McCartney goes from a major to a minor chord, and we all sing along, and just like that, maybe what makes a beloved community isn't perfection, but resolving dissonance amongst itself into harmony so that our hearts and minds all sing along. I guess I'm saying that none of us here are perfect. If we were, we wouldn't be here. And knowing that 
We should have compassion for the dissonant ones in the dissonant times because we've all been that dissonance ourselves. And if our song can be as legendary as any song by the Beatles, then I'm happy to experience those moments of tension and I look forward to them resolving into harmony. And speaking of resolving into harmony, let's meditate a little bit. Go ahead and uh, let go of all the dissonance in your body right now. Let go of all the discordant, uncomfortable, inharmonious things going on in the body right now, the things that don't feel right, the things that don't feel quite right, you know, your uncomfortable bottom on the cushion or, you know, the dry throat or whatever it is that's not quite perfect. Notice it, acknowledge it, Allow it to be there. Don't push it away. In fact, notice it so that you can use that dissonance in your body to see how to be okay with it. And being okay with it brings it into harmony. When you go from pushing it away or trying to hold on to it. Instead, you go to that palms up, letting it rest in the palm of your hand rather than clutching it with the fist. Then you resolve it into harmony. All those times where you're Saying, oh, my back hurts. Oh, my throat is dry. Oh, my job is killing me. Oh, my, that, that little uh, disagreement in the community is driving me nuts. That person's so irritating. You know, whatever the thing is, when you go from thinking that, you know, all of those things are the problem, that's when that's happening in your heart and in your mind when those things are building that's the dissonance that's the the discordant inharmonious things building tension and when you flip your hand over and release your fist on that dissatisfaction. That dissonance resolves into harmony or begins to resolve into harmony. It goes from being 
unpleasant to the ear, the mental ear. <laughs> to you're singing along with it. <laughs> This might be the one time where meditating and having a song stuck in your head is beneficial. <laughs> if by now you have Penny Lane stuck in your head as I do, <laughs> then maybe you can learn from that. And he goes from a major to a minor chord. And your hair on the back of your neck goes up a little bit. And somebody says something unpleasant to you. and You get rubbed the wrong way a little bit. Builds a little bit of tension and you complain about it to somebody else. Did you hear what so-and-so said? Can you believe that? How could they do that? And then the two of you start going. And then you chat about it with everybody else. And pretty soon everybody's at the gate with pitchforks and torches. When you let go of that clenched fist on your opinion, your view of what's right, of what they should have said, should have done, how you should have been treated, and you quit shooting all over yourself, you flip your hand over and hold it palms up, and you let that opinion rest there, and you look at it, and you see, oh, wonder what they're going through in their life right now that caused them to say that. I wonder if I've ever done something like that. Have I ever been that person? Have I ever been the source of conflict? You bet your ass I have. <laughs> I am quite often the source of conflict. Not as much today as I was 15 years ago, thankfully. But when I look at conflict can almost always see where I've been that same conflict. What did I need to learn from it? Sometimes I learned by being very harshly disciplined. Not very often. Sometimes. 
Sometimes you learn those hard lessons. But most of the time, for me, I learned from people being kind to me when they had no need to be, no responsibility to be. I've talked about it many times in here. I've had friends who heard me say something that was racist or sexist or, you know, uh, inappropriate or whatever. And those friends pulled me aside. They loved me enough to not only let me get away with it, but to not let me get away with it. They loved me enough to not walk away from me and go, I can't believe he said that, and then just walk away from that relationship. They loved the relationship with me enough that they uh, spoke to me about it and said, hey, you know, that thing you said really hurt my feelings, and here's why. And here's why you shouldn't say things like that. And I learned from those moments because the dissonance was so strong. It built so much tension that when they resolved that tension with compassion, it brought tears to my eyes and it made me understand how I had messed up and how fortunate I was to have someone who uh, cared enough about me to say, hey, you're messing up. Or maybe they were very gentle about it and said, hey, you should ask yourself, what's the most generous thing you can do in this moment? As my teacher did. It was the most polite way anybody's ever told me to stop talking so much. <laughs> and a great life lesson. What's the most generous thing I can do in this moment?
You're still here? It's over. Go practice. Go. Chicken